Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, bringing you clear insight every two weeks in an age of increasingly dynamic risk and intensifying connectivity. How did we get here? The relationship between the United States and China has been frustrating politicians and business people for easily more than a decade. Control Risks has been following the relationship between the United States and China ever since our own forecasts and everybody else's predictions too, said that China was well on its way to becoming a modern global superpower. It feels like many of the conversations concerning China and the US today almost exactly mirror the conversations we were having both in-house and with clients exactly 10 years ago. To provide you with the kind of insight that comes from attentive monitoring and forecasting, we're gonna trace the arc of the relationship between the United States and China over the past 10 years. With me today is Andrew Gillum, a principal in the firm and our lead China analyst. Andy's dialing in from his home in Seoul, South Korea. Hi, Chuck. Joining us from the United States are two of our colleagues. Jonathan Wood in Washington, D.C. is our lead U.S. analyst. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chuck. Good morning. Also joining us is Bliss Kaw. Bliss works in our New York office and is a principal in the firm. Bliss is in charge of managing all of our U.S. client engagements for consultancy in China. Bliss, welcome. Thank you very much, Chuck. So the impetus for this episode was a conversation we were having just a couple of weeks ago about a consulting report Andy had written in November of 2010. In December of 2010, just a month after we submitted our report, most U.S. mobile phone carriers were just rolling out their 4G capabilities. So, you know, we have to put our heads in a time period when the current dispute between the United States and China, much of which is revolving around 5G mobile phone technology, the entire concept of 5G didn't even exist 10 years ago. So the question to all of you really to get the ball rolling is, did we see this coming? Chuck, I think the answer is, like a lot of analysts, we saw, I think, the fundamentals and our view for it for a long time before the, the, the Trump administration was that those fundamentals pointed to a very high likelihood of confrontation in some of the areas that we're seeing play out now. I don't think we could claim that we foresaw the details and the, the timelines of just quite how that has ebbed and flowed, particularly since 2018 and particularly in, in 2020. And I think a lot of that has been down to several really important catalysts that kind of accelerated everything and, and brought things to where we are now. There's a lot of attention to the catalyst that has been Donald Trump and his administration and how they've handled China in the last few years. But before that, I think Xi Jinping and the direction that he has taken China both domestically and internationally has been almost a prerequisite for Donald Trump's approach to China. And the fact that there's been a bipartisan 
shift on attitudes towards China from the US. Also, China's conclusions from the global financial crisis made them a lot more assertive, a lot more confident, and in some ways, I think, brought a more conclusive rejection of the strengths of Western political and economic models. I think that was another catalyst. And more recently, the coronavirus has really thrown oil on the flames of US-China relations this year. The way that technology has evolved and made a lot more industries strategic than there were 10 years ago has been another big factor. So that all these catalysts have come together, I think, to shape the details of how this conflict has played out in the last two years and escalated in the last two years. I can't claim to have forecast all of that 10 years ago, but I think the writing has been on the wall for a long time and arguably it still is looking forward regardless of who wins the next US election. Jonathan, was the writing on the wall in the United States? I remember 10 years ago after the global financial crisis, what we saw and what we were saying to clients through our annual risk map and other channels was that this really was an inflection point in the international order and in particular in U.S. dominance of that order, because this was a financial crisis that materialized and emerged in the sort of core of global democratic liberal capitalism. But in particular, it really accelerated China's catch up in a number of areas, economic, geopolitical and national security. And I think one thing that we started to see about that time was a change in U.S. threat perceptions of China, in particular, China's catching up and surpassing the U.S. in some economic metrics. So I think it surpassed the U.S. in purchasing power parity GDP around 2007, 2008 timeframe. It is sort of swiftly creeping up on nominal GDP as we speak. And perhaps this current economic crisis as a result of COVID-19 will accelerate that even faster. We had some sort of normative developments in China's military capabilities around the same time that in particular posed threat to U.S. security dominance of the Western Pacific and the U.S. architecture there. We started to see China expand for the first time in its modern history into a few other theaters, notably the Middle East, where around that time it was deploying outside of the Asia region to combat Somali piracy. And then I think we also started to see that technological issue and that technological catch-up really begin to accelerate at around the same time as well. You know, from the U.S. standpoint, the global financial crisis was at its core an economic crisis. And the hangover of that economic crisis is one thing that drew such attention to the loss of manufacturing and industrial jobs in the U.S. over a much longer time frame, really since the early 1990s. That is obviously a factor that was very significant in President Donald Trump's coming to power in 2016. So out of the sort of wreckage of that economic crisis and that narrative about U.S. jobs, that narrative about U.S. capacities, and in particular, that narrative around the U.S. relative positioning with China as a geopolitical influencer and power, that was absolutely elemental to the campaign that President Trump ran in 2016. And I think as Andy mentioned, there are these convergent factors happening now, COVID-19 technology, but the U.S. election cycle is undoubtedly one of those. And we are in a period in which, to some degree, President Trump's campaign is running a very similar message about global competition and the need for the U.S. to confront 
more forcefully China's historic and sort of organic and inevitable rise. And we're seeing somewhat similar messaging from the Democrats. In former Vice President Joe Biden's acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination, he made one short but sharp reference to China, which is to say, to wit, the U.S. must never be vulnerable to Chinese supply chains when it comes to medical equipment in the wake of COVID-19. And so we are seeing a sort of harder edged concern about the U.S. economy and how it plays in terms of U.S. global strategy. And I think that is very much a bipartisan concern. Certainly one thing that we've been saying for most of the last two years here at Control Risks is that whichever party wins this election, this U.S.-China rivalry and competition will continue because in the end, those trends that started 10 years ago are really bringing this sort of economic, geopolitical, security, technological parity to a head in the very near future. Did the United States and China miss any opportunities over the past 10 years that could have brought us to a different place today? I mean, speaking purely from the U.S. side, there are sort of three big missed opportunities that I think most policymakers are focused on. The first of these is the sort of historical trade liberalization agenda that in retrospect, and even for some of its promoters, played a big role in the migration of high-skilled, high-tech manufacturing out of the U.S. And I think there's a certain bit of desire to go back and maybe undo some of that to preserve a core industrial manufacturing base here in the U.S. And that leads perhaps to the second point. Certainly one of the missed opportunities identified during the Trump era was President Trump's immediate withdrawal upon coming to office from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was, of course, reconstituted without the U.S., but which was always conceived as the sort of economic prong of a multilateral U.S. competition strategy with China. And sort of laterally, as the U.S.-China competition in 2020 and maybe late 2019 accelerated, I think even within the Trump administration, there was some sense that actually that multilateral approach probably would have been more effective than the mainly unilateral approach that this administration has been taking. And then the third area is if the economic realm is sort of the one prong of U.S. strategy, the national security and strategic architecture was the other one. And certainly former President Barack Obama has come in for a lot of criticism, both from the Trump administration and Republican national security hawks, but also within his own party for not more forcefully confronting China's activities in some of these disputed maritime domains. There is perhaps a sense here in Washington that if the U.S. had raised the costs of some of those activities 10 years ago, seven or eight years ago, when they were really accelerating, then we might be on a different trajectory now. Andy, could China have done anything differently? Part of the reason that the differences currently seem so irreconcilable is that if you ask that question to the majority of people in Beijing versus the majority of people in Washington, I think you get genuinely deeply held, completely contradictory answers. So from China's perspective, the missed opportunity is the fault of the US and that the US never really intended to let China rise to its rightful great power status and that the US is not willing to accept China's 
system and therefore is trying to keep China down. And that is where the missed opportunity was, a US fundamental unwillingness to accommodate and adjust to China having a much larger place in the world, starting with a much larger place in in East Asia and the global economy and including the upper parts of the global economy, not just assembling things for American companies, but being technology leaders themselves. Clearly, the view from, I think, both sides of the aisle in the US is very different to that. And I think it is that China has just gone on for too long, not conceding enough, whether it's in terms of market access or various aspects of trade policy. A big part of this is the dashing of hopes that China's economic development would lead to a change and a liberalization of its political system. I'm not sure how many people who seriously follow China ever really expected that, but that's clearly part of the narrative, a realization or a disappointment on that front. But even without that, I think there's a feeling that when China joined the WTO, they were a potential future great economic power and competitor. Today, they're a very immediate and real great power and economic and beyond competitor. Reciprocity on both sides, but particularly from the US side, is is the watchword. Why can US companies not do things in China that Chinese companies can or, or could do in the US? And that completely different conception of who is right and who is wrong. I mean, it's very basic stuff. I think that's a key reason why we have such pessimism, I think, about any fundamental improvement in what we're seeing here. There's more than one view in Beijing, just as there's more than one view in in Washington. I think there is also a sense in China among some, and a view amongst many foreign China watchers that China kind of missed the time to take the off-ramp and missed a period in which, for example, during some of the trade negotiations during the Obama era, China really played hardball and made it very difficult to get anywhere in the view of people on the US side. And that if they'd been more flexible then, there may have been a less strong and less rapid loss of patience, if you like, with China. And the US would not have come to the conclusion that they'd basically been played for years and wrapped up in negotiations and process and bilateral mechanisms. I think there is a credible argument to be made that China underestimated the possibility that the US would lose patience with that and that the US and many other countries would not accept some of China's practices when it's the second most powerful country in the world and the major trade partner and in some cases trade competitor to most countries in the world. So I think there was a missed opportunity there. Liz, companies have been investing in China from all over the world for decades, but clearly that investment activity has intensified over the past couple of decades. What are companies doing as they see the barbs flying back and forth between Washington and Beijing? They've been participants in the relationship. They've been victims of the relationship. What sort of issues are companies juggling? In many ways, much of the business community in the U.S., they agree with the Trump administration's confrontation of these very problematic business practices that do and have taken place for decades in China. That's not a new concept, and this has been the case for a number of years. But I think that the way the confrontation has been unfolding and the methods and the tools that are being used by the U.S. administration 
has really represented a lot of really challenging operational and business issues for these companies because each of these decisions, each of these legislative processes, each of these announcements, these all represent really major changes and it forces these companies to be constantly pivoting. I think it depends on the industry and how strategic a certain company might be in the middle of the dispute between the U.S. and China as to how they respond or what they're doing about it or whether they are responding at the moment. For many businesses who have been there for a long time who are perhaps less strategic, it's maybe a situation where they've been there for such a long time dealing with many unfair practices that nothing has really changed too much for them in the immediate term. And I think it's more waiting to see how some of these upcoming decisions, the election and the aftermath, what that may or may not mean for the ongoing dialogue. But for others, they're forced to really respond. Those that are really in the crosshairs of clashing economic policies between U.S. and China. Those who are really subject to a lot of the recent changes and announcements by you know, the BIS and other U.S. regulators that have a direct impact on what they are able to do in China, who they can sell to, how they can sell, how they can trade. And it's really challenging for them because they can't just suddenly find a new client set or completely change your supply chain. You know, they've been operating in China for a number of years. And at the same time, the supply chain in China has also had a number of decades to develop. That's not something you can just replicate by moving to another country. And so they're being forced to sort of figure out how to navigate this this very choppy, turbulent water between the U.S. and China. It's interesting because if you talk about some of the conversations we've been having with U.S. companies that have been operating in China for a long time, we've tried to help them understand that compliance in a place like China is highly politicized. It's something that they have to be very strategic about. It can be quite difficult to understand how to follow the rules and the rule book is just not clear at all. And actually, if you talk about kind of the upcoming challenges that they're facing, especially in the changing U.S. regulatory space, that message of complying on the U.S. side with U.S. regulations has also become very very politicized. And so I think that roadmap ahead for them is quite challenging. And it's interesting in some ways in terms of how we're mirroring those conversations between what compliance looks like, what that means, especially in such new regulatory landscape in this very, very charged politicized environment, it becomes very difficult to navigate. Presumably, you know, you wake up in the morning and you get your news bulletins and you check all of your alerts and you sort of think, what's it going to be today? And not just for political risk analysts, but for companies they must feel exactly the same way. And that is, what are we going to be hit by this morning? Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's probably a lot of motion sickness being experienced by people in government relations, corporate development roles, certainly in the C-suite, as they consider what does this mean for the next day's planning or the next short-term period until something else changes. I think they probably are cringing every morning when they open up their laptops and look at kind of what's rolling in the news today. And I think they're very much feeling stuck between two very difficult places. They're getting hit potentially on the, the U.S. side just based on the direct decisions and the actions that may be taken that can have a direct impact on their operations and their strategy. But certainly on the China side, then there's another set of worries and concerns that, you know, you could get stuck in a situation where they might face retaliatory actions, they're vulnerable to that because of the industry that they're in, if they're highly strategic, then they're dealing with kind of what's the blowback on the China side as well. So they're getting kind of hit between both sides. So here's the challenge to all of you. What are we going to say in 10 years? I think the broad trajectory, unfortunately, is that, you know, those same fundamental drivers that were there for the last 10 suggest a continued problematic course for the next 10. There's a relatively optimistic scenario, I think, where the costs of failing to 
reach compromise or, or consensus on certain areas or failing to to contain escalation and contain decoupling as well, at some point outweigh the domestic political drivers that we're seeing in the ascendancy at the moment. And some sort of accommodation is figured out that stops or, or caps that trajectory. And, you know, new spheres of dominance, if you like, are established. But I think the more likely scenario, to be honest, over that kind of Time frame, And this is hugely dependent, I think, on some of the scenarios for China's domestic trajectory. But assuming that its rise pretty much continues roughly along current lines, I think we will see a continuation of that trend towards decoupling. And that doesn't mean, again, a sort of splitting up of the world into two completely separate ideological and economic spheres. But I think you can very realistically conceive of decoupling meaning something other than that, but something very important where the extent to which a lot of companies in a lot of industries cannot operate in China and in other markets with the same integration and freedom and and success and, and market share, frankly, that they do currently. And then a lot of them will have to kind of, you know, choose sort of which area they're going to predominantly be in. I don't think that will happen sort of decisively or quickly, but the urgency and the priority on pushing this agenda of self-reliance and these concepts that are talked about a lot these days in China of dual circulation and safe growth. These are basically, you know, variations on the theme of of self-reliance and being much more focused on the domestic economy as a driver of growth and on being able to sustainably operate in terms of supply chains and everything else domestically without vulnerability to the kind of shocks that that China's seen in the last year or two. You know, it's pretty much an inevitable reaction to what has happened in the last couple of years. Having said that, I think that the time frame that we talk about most with clients is, I guess at this point, it's broken down into maybe three time frames. There's the big question of what happens in the next four months, I guess, you know, now to the election and the election until the, the inauguration. And I think a part of the question there is basically, given the actions that we've seen in the last few weeks, the last few months, how much damage could be done just in the next few months to the US-China relationship or to Chinese companies by people in the White House who are very keen to push this agenda and do as much as they can while in office? And in particular, is China going to be able to continue being very, very restrained in their response If US actions continue to escalate from some perspectives, it might not look like China is being very restrained in their response at times. And in in several cases, they, you know, they announce very directly reciprocal responses to, to US actions. But generally speaking, to the most major actions, there's been very little response. Then there's the question of the 2021 outlook in two different scenarios for the US election and then the long-term strategic question. So the 10-year one, I think, given given how difficult it's been to predict the end of 2020 from the start of 2020, or at this point, the end of next week, I think the 10-year time frame is a pretty challenging one right now. When Andy said the word inauguration, 
naturally you think about Washington and you think about all the red, white, and blue bunting over the Capitol at an inauguration. Jonathan, hang, hang with me through this for a second, because I was thinking that over the course of a 10-year scenario horizon, we could be at a minimum of three presidents or a maximum of four presidents into the future. And so how do you even think about the relationship between two countries where you've got up to four potential presidents coming in and out of office? Well, that's exactly right. And as Andy was speaking, I was thinking that that political succession dynamic is probably one of the four big things that will shape this trajectory over the next 10 years. Because as we have seen, there can be considerable change in US strategy and foreign policy within a single administration. And you rightly point out, it's difficult to anticipate what policies a future administration might adopt, except within some very broad parameters, notably the sort of continuation of this US-China strategic competition, which will undoubtedly still be in place in 10 years time. But what that looks like may vary substantially. And I think what we've been mainly saying to clients is that under a prospective democratic Biden-Harris administration, we would be looking at a similar competitive dynamic, but one that occurs within the framework of multilateral coordination and cooperation with key U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific region and globally. And that would, of course, include the Europeans, but also perhaps some of those in the Western Hemisphere in Latin America, where China is posing increasingly perceived strategic threat to U.S. influence in its own backyard. I think the second dynamic that I would identify, and I know, Chuck, this is one that's close to your heart as the former head of our Moscow office, which is that we haven't so far seen, and Andy alluded to this as well, a strong ideological dynamic in this competition. This is really a little bit more nuts and bolts around who has influence economically, militarily, technologically, and otherwise. Yeah, but you know what? Nobody ever really cared about ideology. In the U.S.-Soviet standoff, you know, ideology was a bit of a sideshow. But anyway. Well, to that point, I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out over the course of the next decade, because the current administration has been working very hard to inject an ideological dimension into that competition, in particular through its very aggressive and to some degree unprecedented focus on human rights issues in various parts of China. So as the U.S. takes some steps down this decoupling road, does it try to imbue these with a ideological narrative that will make maybe some of that work more difficult to undo in the future? Another issue, which I think will be very important, is the U.S. and China's ability to cooperate on issues and areas of significant international security and global concern. We're debating now, the U.S. is moving to push the reimposition of sanctions on Iran, which of course China, Russia, Europe are, are resisting and opposing. But that area of non-proliferation activity was one where the US and China had fairly productive cooperation, both towards Iran and North Korea over the course of the last 10 years. And if anything, the course of the next 10 years will make it increasingly clear that these big global problems, and that very much includes climate change, where there's a pretty stark 2030 deadline looming. These big global problems cannot be addressed without the US and China getting along and working together as the two most 
influential countries globally. So, you know, I think in the, in the same vein of what factors might put a constraint on U.S.-China competition, optimistically, one might be the recognition that there are some bigger stakes at play, whether that's nuclear nonproliferation or climate change or global pandemics, where U.S.-China cooperation coordination is absolutely essential. And then probably the last area that I think will be important to pay attention to is the sheer trajectory of some of the international and global governance institutions that have come under increasing strain under the Trump administration, bearing in mind that these were institutions where the U.S. was either directly or very closely involved in setting them up in the sort of post-war era, where there is a perception that the U.S. has stepped back from leadership roles and indeed proactively attacked and undermined some of these institutions from the World Traders Organization to the International Criminal Court and more recently perhaps to the UN Security Council. I think we are looking at a world potentially in 10 years time where if there is not a change in both the US and China's trajectory, that these global governance institutions, these forums for international dialogue and cooperation that have been relatively successful at both preventing you know, a major global conflict, but also at providing some of the underpinnings for developing country and emerging market economic growth, that these may become at best increasingly irrelevant and at worst completely dysfunctional. Bliss, final word to you. We hear terms like spheres of dominance and strategic rivalry and reorganization of supply chains and terms like that. Are we going to have a China consultancy business 10 years from now? Are US companies going to want to? Are they going to be able to? Or is it going to be worth doing what they're doing now in China 10 years from now? I definitely don't think there is a wholesale movement away from China at this point. Definitely not. Even those who are under the most strain in the really strategic sectors, for them, this is a really highly pressurized time. But even for them, I don't hear people considering just moving supply chains away from China, partly just because it's not possible. That's a process that takes a long time, even if they are to consider that. For them, the conversation is more about taking a really close, hard look at what their strategy is in China and being as careful and as thoughtful about what that looks like rather than just kind of continuing to do the status quo, because that's certainly not going to work. So those who are in highly strategic sectors who are, I think, definitely on the pointy end of this conversation, they're being forced to think about, or they should be thinking about, what does it look like to be in China right now versus 5, 10, certainly 20, 30 years ago is very, very different. The expectations, I think, from the Chinese government, especially if you're in a strategic sector, is that you're not just there to take advantage of the situation, manufacture your things, and just use China as a spot to make things, but that you need to contribute, not just in terms of investment, but in ways that can help China reach its economic policy goals. And companies have to decide whether that's something they are willing to play along with and, and what that can potentially mean when it comes to risks to their IP in terms of their positions in the market, because inevitably that's what China's trying to do. They're trying to develop those technologies as well. They're trying to be self-reliant. That is not a new message for China by any means. So companies really have to decide if that's something that they're willing to consider to in some ways if they want to continue staying in China. 
China is very much moving towards a consumer-led market as well. So depending on the industry and what a company understands and is willing to change about their designs for China, things are going to look very different for them. For many, I think the window for opportunity is closing in some ways in terms of their market share in China, especially if you're talking about a strategic sector. So the way that they work with China is going to have to change quite a lot. They're going to have to be very open to that. Bliss, thank you very, very much for that. Just reminding everybody, that is Bliss Kaw, who is a principal at Control Risks in our New York office. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Jonathan in Washington, D.C. Jonathan Wood, pleasure having you on board. Thanks for dialing in. Thanks, Chuck. And Andrew Gillum, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as our five-part series on regional risks in conjunction with our 2020 risk map update. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. Thank you.